The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Needle Mythology Podcast. Needle Mythology. With myself, Pete Papides, brought to you in uh, conjunction with our friends at Flare Audio, creators, inventors of peerlessly wonderful earphones and headphones. I am joined today by uh, two of my favourite musical people who uh, it's always a joy to get together with from time to time, although sadly it doesn't happen enough, such is the way of modern life. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about them. To my right is, uh, well, quite simply, one of the... uh, greatest record producers of my generation and I don't think anyone can really make an actual band just sound as great as this gentleman can and uh, you don't need to take my word for it there's a kind of long list of classic albums that bear his name by the likes of obviously we have Blur and the Smiths and the Cranberries, uh, Kaiser Chiefs, Morrissey, Peter Doherty and Baby Shambles Madness and New Order, records by these people all bear he's in Britain and they're all fantastic. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as. A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as. He's called Stephen Street, and I'm staring at him right now. Stephen, how are you? Greetings. Thanks. That was a very nice intro. I'm blushing. It's literally the truth. (laughs) It's all good. It's scientifically proven stuff. And straight across the way from me is a gentleman whose music I've been listening to since I was a teenager. And because Needle Mythology isn't just a podcast, it's a record label, which I've somehow managed to get off the ground. And it seems to be going quite well. And one of the reasons it's going quite well is that our first release was... uh, an album made by him some 22 years ago, produced by Stephen Street. And when it came out, to be perfectly honest, I thought it was just the greatest thing he, he'd sort of ever done. And I still listen to it all the time. And it's a joy to be able to reissue it, reconfigure it on our label, Needle Mythology. The album is called I Love My Friends. And the person who made it is Stephen Duffy. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Peter. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. <laughs> Getting high Every night Till I couldn't see The sunshine and the light Start again Draw some fire To fight the built-in obsolescence of desire When love's the only thing It hurts to lose In the evening of her day Ophelia comes to court me Not that I could stay away so you've been in, you've stayed in touch with each other because you, Stephen, you produced Stephen when you were back in the mid eighties, really, when you were getting your sort of career as a producer. I was learning my chops. Yeah, I was I was working at Island Records and I had a studio called the Fallout Shelter, which was in the basement of the, the main Island Records HQ, which was a fantastic building in Hammersmith. So Stephen, Stephen Duffy's record was one of the first records where I actually got a production kind of credit, as it were. And I look back on that time, actually, as being a very, um, well, it was just such a great creative step to take because it was very different to the work I was doing with the Smiths at the time. 
but I, I got just as much pleasure and enjoyment out of it. And we've kind of stayed in touch, yeah, on and off since then. And it, you know, it was a good working relationship, without a doubt. Icing on the cake was that the first record you got into the top 20 with your name on it as a producer. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, looking back on it, I think it was because I've been so I've started, been peddling that line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it all started there. So I, I've got to thank Stephen for giving me the chance in the first place to uh, trust me to kind of work with him on his on his music and make a record. Because you tried I, working with other producers prior, obviously tried prior to that point. I uh, asked Jeff Travis who I had all these demos for an album and they weren't really, they weren't very good. And I said, who, who should I work with to finish this record? And he said the unmentionable Morrissey, that Stephen was the only person that Morrissey would work with. So I, I got in touch with Stephen. And I think the first thing we did was Icing on the Cake. I certainly remember Icing on the Cake being the track, the first track that you and I recorded yeah, from start to finish. Yeah, yeah. And that was great. It really does, and it's one of those songs that there would have been an interim period where you would have sort of asked yourself, does it sound a bit too 80s or does it not sound a bit too 80s? But actually a lot of the things that were a bit less produced at the time can sometimes sound a bit weedy now. And this is a hallmark, I think, of your production sound. You know, no, nothing you ever do seems to sound weedy. It has that kind of oomph about it. Like, it came on in the car the other day, my youngest daughter, quite taken aback, but, you know, she loved it. Well, it's funny because, I mean, I don't regard myself as having a sound like Phil Spector had a sound. Or, in fact, Trevor Horn had a sound for a while, you know, especially around that kind of period. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah you could hear a Trevor Horn production and go, that, that was him. I mean, the way I played the sonic qualities of working with Stephen was very different to what I was applying to the Smiths. There was a link, mm. but there was no way I was going to make Stephen Tintin Duffy sound like the Smiths and vice versa, you know, I mean... You have to work or fool them. But, but, you know, but the point I'm trying to make is, is that you know, it's, uh, it's not my job to put my sound on something. My job is to bring the best of that artist and get them as presentable as possible, without distorting their vision hmm. uh, to the public. And that's the way I kind of see it. Really. And what I like about what you do is you push it forward. What an artist is trying to do, and yeah. you make it kind of front and center and loud and clear. But if the artist is meandering off or kind of if you can see a way of making it better, you have a way of kind of saying, well, have you thought about doing it like this that doesn't feel like... You've been manipulated. Yeah. yeah. You get the best out of people by inspiring them by what you say as well as, the, you know, the great sound that you... And it's an unpretentious sound, and that's why it doesn't date, because you're not going with the latest gizmos or... Yeah. Although there was a lot of pressure back then in the 80s too. I mean, yeah. the 80s really was a big change in production, you know. I mean, like the 70s, I think the record production of the 70s was a gradual kind of honing of what was going on in the 60s. But in the 80s, with all these new drum machines and samplers and digital reverbs and everything, everything really did change. You, there was a lot of pressure on everyone to kind of like, you must use this if you want to sound like, you know, if you want to get here. in a way producing the Smiths throughout, and then Morrissey throughout the time almost gave you a kind of protective barrier because those were artists that were not going to want to sound very 80s I started something That sort of tied you over in a way until Blur came along. Yeah, and right, yeah, it did. Well, the Cranberries in between. Wasn't it? Well, the Cranberries was later, it was just yeah. after Blur. Yeah, they were. But again, but the, but the Cranberries grew up on stuff that they really loved from the eighties, like the Cure and the Cocteau Twins and that kind of thing. You know, so 
there was some great indie stuff going on in the 80s it's not you know I mean, it, didn't, it wasn't everyone trying to sound like Trevor Horn but there was this there was this certain element of like making everything sound really you know slick and uh, I always remember my own personal benchmark that the record that I really loved and I still love to this day is the first Lloyd Cole and the Commotions album yeah. Rattlesnakes because that for me encompassed everything Jody was a hattle, it hasn't rained for six days a girl needs a gun these days Hey, all the cannibal and rattlesnakes She looks like human soul In an underwater front She reads to multiple war In her American circumstance It sounded slick. It sounded really well performed. You know, Lloyd was singing great. And, you know, and, and, and that was something I always kind of, in the back of my mind, I thought, I'll fucking make a record as good as that. Produced by Paul Hardiman. Yeah. I remember Lloyd saying to me that he um, he's one of those producers who, as much as anything, he sees it as his role to just get the band relaxed. Mm-hmm. Because if the band are relaxed and they'll sort of play, exactly. they'll be more like themselves. But weirdly enough, just having spoken to... You know, the boys in Blur and the Kaisers about how you... That's the kind of thing I hear about you as well. So it's... Man management is part of doing that job. Huge part of it. Can't overestimate how how big a part of it is. It really is. I still remember some producers and their their way of getting you relaxed was just getting you as stoned as possible because, you know, it was just after the 70s. So, I mean, the the way producers, they were just... you know, It didn't work with me. Did it not? No. no. Our sessions were incredibly disciplined and very dry. I don't mean even had a drink in the studio. I mean, like, I'd rather work hard and then at 10 o'clock go, well, I've had enough now. Should we go down the pub and have a quick pint before we go home? And that's why I I did that with Blur from the very early days, you know, when there were young whippersnappers who wanted to be in the studio all night long. I've got to ask you this. How does this work with Peter Doherty then? Well, it kind of worked the same way. I did have to, I did, no, surprisingly, yeah. Okay, right, that's it now, Peter. I'll be in tomorrow. If you're not in, if you don't get in until late, we have just got less time in the studio because I'm not going to be up all night, you know. And, and actually, surprisingly, it paid. It, well, I've made three records with him two Baby Shambles records and a, and a solo record, which it's I'm incredibly great, proud of. Great show, the record. She opened her heart to tear away. Sheepskin tear away. was covered in scars and full of hair. That solo record is, yeah, isn't it great, Steve? It's, yeah. it's um, and, you know, that the people can still not view him as a, as a great artist. You know, you don't produce a record like that out of nowhere, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, that comes from within, doesn't it, you know? But it was, you know, listening to the, uh, Grace and Wasteland, that solo album, I just, <laughs> it almost makes me laugh to think of the conversations that must have resulted in such a disciplined sounding <laughs> album. Yeah, I mean, the demos I got were for that were just like the most basic demos I've ever received in my life. Literally were him just singing into, yeah, like an Apple computer, and he would just kind of like sit down with the guitar and play into the uh, the inbuilt microphone. <laughs> and that was it, and it was mumbling and half-finished bits and pieces. And I thought, well, I'm going to need some impetus here. I really want to do it, because I, I, mean, I do love him as an artist. I do. Mm. And, I, and Peter, underneath that horrible fug of drug addiction, there's a really talented human being. Oh, yeah. There. And I thought, I'm going to try and see if I can get him to snap into focus for a little bit by kind of challenging him in a way by saying, OK, I'm going to see if I can get Graham Coxon to come in on this session. And if I do, you can't mess about, you know what I mean? We're going to have to really try and, you know, it did work, actually. He did. It yeah. kind of made him, made him focus. I think getting Peter in the studio for more than three days in a row on time is pretty difficult, but we did do that. You know, we got him in the studio for the first three days and he was with Graham and I had him actually facing one another. There were tracks where I knew I wanted to have some drums and stuff. I would give them a very basic click to play to so that I could just kind of get a sense of the song. Yeah. And then, well, I used the Baby Shambles ribbon section on it, you know, to come in and play on it. And it sounded great. It's a beautiful album, and um, this role of Graham as the sort of elder, wiser wingman who's kind of to a certain degree been there, been sort of falling apart, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I'm guessing, just on the basis of the record, I'm guessing it must have worked as well as it sounded like it worked. Yeah, I think I think Graham had felt a certain empathy with Peter. I mean, you know, Graham's had his kind of dark moments as well. What's that they're telling you? That's your future, I'm telling you. You're gonna pick your pocket too. Peter obviously loved the idea of having you know, Graham Coxon playing guitar on his record, so he gave him a lot of respect. So it helped Pete focus a bit more, you know? Yeah. Time together on a snakey road. No time together like time spent. Together on a snakey road. I'd learned a little bit by working with him once before on the, on the Shotter's Nation album, the Baby Shambles record. Yeah. And again, you know, I'd had highs and lows on that album working with him. I'm made of hardy stuff. I don't think it's something that I could have done in my first two or three years of being a record producer. I had definitely had to draw on all my experience that I possibly had. I mean, like when I worked with Stephen and Icing on the Cake, if I had been in that phase of my life trying yeah. to make that record, it never would have worked. Yeah. Those know? have been your crack years, Stephen. <laughs> well, I mean, let's, we, we were 25. Yeah, we were both And we, uh, I mean, we, we were just elated to have the opportunity to be allowed into a studio. Yeah, some grown-ups have given us some money, or given you some money to go off and spend in and the we, studio. And we went, and this is something that could never happen now. We were both 25, we'd never recorded a string section. Then suddenly we were there, we had the arrangements, we were in Olympic, mm. in, in old Olympic before they started yeah. it up, mm. with like an orchestra, and, and it was just yeah. recording those beautiful things. Can you imagine somebody saying, now you two guys have never recorded an orchestra before. You go to Olympic yeah. and... Uh, and, you know, see what you come up with. I mean, the great trust from the people at Virgin back in those days. The past is just an anecdote. She can't forget for it's alphabet And we had, we had horns and all sorts. Yeah, I mean the budget you were given was a sizable budget. You know, it was obviously it helped that Stephen had had you know the hit "Kiss Me" before, but it was yeah, it was wonderful. We were able to. Uh, I mean, there's no way we were going to sit around drinking because we were so like we've got an opportunity. Here yeah, and we've got to, we've got to take it. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And you had to, you could call upon some great people in those sessions. I remember when you performed "Icing on the Cake," you had P.P. Arnold just standing next to you singing your words. Guy Pratt on bass. Who was yeah. Whatever bass happened to him? I don't know. <laughs> uh, he's, he's done well for himself. Again, he was, like us, he was young, but he was certainly becoming, you know, a well-known bass player on the circuit. So, well, it was all taking off from that time, you know, because yeah. that's what, it was around that time he got the call from Brian Ferry, and you yeah. know, so it, that's when he entered the major league session kind of circuit. You guys were obviously both quite young at the time. Is it at all intimidating being kind of thrust into this world and being thrust into it quite quickly because you suddenly had this huge sort of hit blow up and obviously... Well, how did you get into it? Because you were in BIM. Yeah, well, I I mean, I was a failed bass player, basically. So, I mean, like a lot of musicians who don't, you know, make it enough on their own band I mm. wanted to kind of still be a recording kind of what was your band I was in a band called BIM and right. the other person that was in that band who went on to achieve quite good things is Cameron McVeigh ah right so Cameron was a singer the front man and I was a bass player in the band but the band despite kind of getting signed and everything we never we never had a label, an album released in this country but if only BIM had made an album they'd, they'd still be going probably. well we have got <laughs> we did release, make an album but it never came out I mean it only got, we only got released in Japan but yeah. anyway whatever it, it, I basically then managed to kind of work my way into becoming a recording engineer and, and at that time there were a lot there were quite a few kind of young recording engineers that had become producers like you know Martin Hannett Martin Russian Steve Lilly White so you know I basically thought if I can learn the chops if I can get my kind of technical side together and recording desk and mic technique and everything and then apply my what little little musicianship I had or the understanding of being a musician and how bands work then perhaps I could get the chance of doing it myself. How did you get involved with Ireland, though? How did it go from wherever you started to being the house engineer at Ireland? I just managed to... I wrote to all the studios I possibly could. And there was an engineer I, I spoke to at Wessex, uh, Jeremy Green. He'd worked with The Clash. And I said, do, do you know of any jobs going? He said, I think Island Records are doing up their studio, the fallout shelter, and yeah. they might be looking for a new assistant. Why don't you give them a call? 
and uh, I got the job. And that was the Bob Marley and the Whalers room they did? They did they? Yeah, I think some of Exodus was recorded down there. Uh, if you're going to have, like, a major record label, there sort of should be a studio in the basement because it's sort of... Uh, it kind of... That's where, you know, the energy sort of flows upwards in a way. And there's... Yeah, I remember a story that... Uh, who sort of told me? I think... Um, Mark Moreau, who I think was a kind of big shot at Ireland. He was for a while, yeah. yeah. And he was telling me PJ Harvey was... There was a bidding war to sign PJ Harvey after her first album on Too Pure. And, you know, she was trying to get the usual assurances that you would from a major Mm. label if you were PJ Harvey, just to make sure that she wasn't about to make the worst decision of her life. Yeah. And uh, they said, well, look, what more can I say to you? You know, we've got a studio in the basement... Right now, if you go down there right now, and I suggest that you do go down there right now, Julian Cope is working on sessions for his next album. Last time I went in there, he was wearing a traffic cone on his head, and he was, <laughs> and he was wearing some coloured leggings and a high-vis waistcoat uh, with precisely nothing else on. Why don't you pop in, see how that's going, and then, <laughs> and then tell us whether or not you think we give our artists enough freedom. Yeah. And then and that was how PJ yeah. Harvey signed it's to cl- Ireland. Clinched the deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's great, though, isn't it? Because that, to have musicians coming into the building, going down, making a racket, and just being around eating, and, you know, it's, it's obvious that, you know, that, that the people who are working in the record company are then exposed to the artists and that, you know, with needle mythology, you need to kind of have a studio in your basement. We'll be down there all the time. Yeah, yeah. We need to find out where we're going to put the washing machine. <laughs> but it's a nice, it's a nice idea. <laughs> Isn't your name on a Black Uhura record? Yeah, basically what happened was is that some of the stuff that was being recorded in Jamaica and Compass Point at that time was being mixed in London. And I was working alongside a very talented young black engineer called Paul Groucho Smichael. Oh, yeah. Just known as Groucho. He was a lovely guy. And he really let me get my hands on the desk a lot as well. He was very encouraging. So and when we were making what became Because We Love You, we were doing a song called Why Shouldn't I Love You? And you, you came in and said, why don't you do this African thing? Because you'd been... You'd yeah. been Subjected, you know, you yeah. knew the real yeah, deal, yeah. so you yeah. could kind of you helped, and yeah. that kind of completely changed the vibe of the song. In it, yeah. that was amazing. It's good, I love that song. Maybe we should play it now. There was an originally an album called Cockshaw. Tell me a little bit. Well, it's about- exactly the same as what happened with I Love My Friends, you know, we, it, we presented it and everybody said, what's the single? And nobody could decide what the single was. And then it all just got sort of ripped apart and Unkiss That Kiss wasn't a hit. Mm. And that just... Back to the drawing board. Put the kibosh on, it just, on So that we had a record ready to go with Unkiss That Kiss being the first single. And if, yeah. if Unkiss That Kiss had gone top 40, then the album would have come out. But... Yeah. Unkiss That Kiss She never could but there is some, there are some great, you know, there's some beautiful, some of people's favourite songs of yours. Well, my career would have been complete if that record had come out. It would, and as it had been uh, made, and it had been a hit, you know, it would have saved me a, a hell of a lot of faffing around starting the lilac time we might not have had a lilac time so i guess but but because it it was all there what the lilac time was going to be in songs like cocksure and sunday supplement and julie christie i mean that sort of that well that more sort of witch season island records of the 70s sort of sound which is the stuff that i knew i loved straight away i mean sunday supplement you know i can remember working on it and just having a bit of a tingle down my spine i knew that was a lovely track will there be Stephen was knocked back kind of so much he was very prolific mm. you know, there's a real genius of a songwriter there so the thing is, is that a lot of lesser people talents would have just kind of gone that's it and literally just died and withered on the vine but I think because Stephen is so prolific he was like well sod you I'll just write some more good that's ass- what saved him basically good attitude ding, ding, ding. 
happen if you've got a comedian in a room, you open their Amazon account, and you look back at everything they've ever bought on that website. Well, this. Because I was consuming so much peanut butter, I decided to try and get a powdered version that wasn't as fattening. Uh, your handwriting can change your life. I regret this book. <laughs> I regret this book. Keep Calm and Love Dom Jolly Novelty Key Ring yeah, and Fridge that. Magnets. Yeah, I love yes. that. I do have that on my fridge. Four pounds you spent on that. That's My Mate Bought a Toaster, available now from Great Big Al. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flair Audio, inventors of the superb Jet earphones. When you're recording a big song like that, the atmosphere in the studio, there must be so, it must be pretty kind of electric on those sorts of days. Yeah, you get those kind of moments sometimes when you sit in there and you feel that kind of deep sense of satisfaction. You're creating something that is pretty special. My problem is I get that when I'm working on complete crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but, 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 but we laugh. But you know, there is this moment where everyone thinks their new thing is the best thing they've ever done. And yeah. sometimes it's only years later I think what on earth was I thinking this is yeah. terrible well that's almost why it must be with some trepidation that you release something the trouble is especially when record companies say to an artist we can't hear a single who's what artist is going to say I don't want to go back into the studio to make more music because that's what you want to do yeah and that's when the mistakes that's when you know that's when I've screwed up records you, you are, I suppose you are trying to make a hit and that's never really yeah, but it, it's complicated, isn't it? Because once there are instances where that's kind of worked, I mean, you didn't you have it with um, with Modern Life is Rubbish when uh, what, what, wasn't Damon basically sent off to write for Tomorrow? Well, what turned out to be yeah. Chem Chemical World and for Tomorrow? Yeah. So that complicates it because sometimes you try and write the hit and it's a hit. Yeah, but well, I mean, it, I mean, they were right in there in that instance that the record label to say we do need a couple more songs. They'd already been through the mill on this album, as it were, already. They tried to work with the World Combo well, with Andy, Andy Partridge. Partridge, yeah, and, uh, and, and some other people as well. And, you know, because Balfi didn't want me to be involved in the second album. I'm not sure they did either, really, at one point. But it's funny how chance can things happen. What happened was I was work, I was about, well, I've been approached by Island Records to work with this young Irish band, the Cranberries. So I said, well, are they going to, can I, can I go and see them play live? You know, and they said, well, they're actually playing um, in London uh, at the Marquee. Not the not the original Marquee, it was when it moved round to... Yeah, it was on Ch uh, Charing Cross, Charing Cross Road. Road, yeah. So I'll go and watch the Cranberries play, and there was something interesting there. I mean, this is when Dolores was so nervous, she sang sideways onto the audience, you know. I mean, they weren't the most engaging act, to be honest with you, but there was something there, you know. I'd, I'd heard the demos, which I liked. And sure enough... I, you know, by chance, I bumped into Graham that night. And I said to him, oh, how's it going, Graham? You know, and um, he said, oh, it's not going great now. I've been in the studio. Can we make that a little bit higher? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's not working. And, it's, and he was mumbling away, kind of not happy. You know? And I kind of gave him a little pep talk. I said, look, you're one of the best guitar players I've ever worked with. You're a great band. Uh, I think, you, you know, just stick at it, mate. It's going to work out. You'll be okay. He must have gone back and had a word with Damon because literally about two days later I'm in the <laughs> studio and I get his phone call. Hey, Streeter, yeah, um, do you want to have a meeting, have a chat? You know, I was like, so they basically circumnavigated the record company and said, we want to meet. And I met with them, again, we clicked and, we, and, and that was it. He's a 20th century boy With his hands on the Didn't they, or yeah, when they, wasn't it almost not released? But Andy Ross had to go out on yeah. a limb to get the EMI to put it out. Absolutely. Well, everybody has success can improve yeah. a record. Yeah. And so we hold each other tightly And hold on for Okay, well, let's talk about uh, what happened with I Love My Friends. It's 1996, and you're on a subsidiary of a major label. So that that's kind of great in itself. So we're talking about an album that might not have been made at all mm. had it not been for the fact that you were uh, signed to sort of indolent at this point and kind of kept on to make this 
second album. I think that the what kept me on the label was we made that Me 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 record, didn't we? Yeah. In, and we made the Me 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 record and we made 17. So I suppose they thought, well, maybe, maybe it will happen. Right. And then we and then we made the record and they they and you know the Spice Girls would just come in round the corner and they thought I don't think we need to deal with 37-year-old men they're a bit you know a bit difficult to work. With. <laughs> I think we might as well let's get some 19-year-old girls in an auto-tune and because Pro Tools HD was just about to happen wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. What were your Steve what were your sort of first impressions of the the songs on this record I love my friends? What I loved about this album, what I heard was like it was much more a singer-songwriter-based record. The more mellow, real yeah. kind of singer-songwriter things, where you're getting through to the real soul of the person singing, mm. I think that kind of interests me more than the more poppier stuff. You know? Yeah. It wasn't a cock and he knees up. No, exactly. I don't remember receiving your postcard I never got much post, so it shouldn't be too hard school in some French town and when you were away I took Debbie to the crown you know it was it was, it was a wonderful session we you know we, 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 we didn't faff about we got it turned around pretty quickly and nothing went wrong no. <laughs> but the and the other thing is it was one of those last records where you know for that I made where the red light came on and you had to perform mm. and you know and I, I just sat there playing the guitar until yeah. he said, yeah, I think we've got it. Yeah. What about a song like One Day One of These Fucks Will Change Your Life? That's a song that I would imagine, you know, all the, all the hired hands who, in the studio or anyone who's kind of in the room would kind of really sit up and take notice at that moment. Yeah, we worked hard on that one. I remember that one taking a lot of work. Still don't think I got the verse right. You know, if, if I could rewrite something, I'd rewrite the verse. Maybe I'd rewrite the words to the chorus as well because the, the F word sticks out like when you've got a seven-year-old yeah 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 and you're you're rehearsing one day one of these bucks will change your life one trip across opening night garden gold pot time in the sun the But if you know, I, yeah, I think a lot of songwriters can write a song which is almost like the wellspring of dozens of their other songs. And with you, I think that song is Julie Christie. Um, you know, it's the staying in the provinces versus escaping, you know, weighing up the risks. What ha- you know, it might go well for you, but it might not go well for other people. And, and the, the interesting thing is they're both in the same position on the record, aren't they? Julie Christie was the last track on Because We Love You, and, the, and one day one of these parts was the last track on it. Yeah. So I'd never thought of that. You cannot stay this home. Who was the guy who did the strings? He did a great job. You're... Well, the guy I use often is yeah. John Metcalf, yeah. Duke String Quartet. And but... I, t- I told him to, I said Barry Manilow. Yeah, yeah. But for me personally, that that, that album, that, that there's two tracks that really stick in my mind, and, and and one of which I think is Autopsy. This is a song that everyone can relate to, you know, about the breaking down of a relationship. Yeah, I love the way we applied ourselves to it because it could have been a nice, gentle, finger-picked kind of acoustic song, but we put this kind of like slow, thumpy, distorted drum thing through it to make it sound even darker. And, and I listened to that record, and I've got to say, for me, if I was to pick out top ten tracks that I've ever worked on, that would be in that top ten. I said, love that song. I think a lot of people would agree with you because I was looking at the um, the listener count on Spotify for the for the. It's not been up very long because it's only been up on Spotify since this reissue that we worked on, and Autopsy has, by some stretch, got the most listens. 
Vauxhall and I, which is a, a record that I kind of also see very much as being. Um, I know you didn't work on that one. No, but it's a great album. Yeah, yeah. Great great. Um, it's an album that, again, it's just, it feels like it marked, it, it depicts its creator at a sort of crossroads, you know? Yeah. You made two Morrissey albums. Well, I made one and one a half. half yeah. I made Viva Hate, and then I started working on new songs, and we were going great. I mean, we did the singles, um, last sort of famous international Playboys and Interesting Drug. If those two tracks had been on the yeah, first album, yeah, it would have been a killer album. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as it were, they ended up being on the Bone of Drag, you know, compilation. But, Are you so, still in touch with them? No, not at all. No. There was an olive branch I held out when I was about six, seven years ago. So I just wanted to say hi, you know. How are you doing? You Lots sent him a copy of Mein Kampf. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, God. So I met up with him. He was very nervous, apparently. He met me with two other people because he wasn't too sure whether I was going to hit him or not, I think. But, <laughs> but seriously, why? that's what this woman why said to me when why he went to would... the toilet. I don't know, because, well, I've not been paid for a while, but there you go. But anyway, I won't want to go into that. But the thing is, is that um, and there was a reissue of Viva Hate coming out, and I said, look, great. And I found this four-track demo of a song, and I said, look, I think this could go on to an extra. You know, it's a little four-track cassette thing that we did in my... Port mm. studio, and I said, no, it'd be great to do that. And I said, I want to re EQ the album a little bit and you know, polish it up a little bit, but no, no, no remixing, I think. I just add this track, and yeah, so that's why he did. And then subsequently, he then went in and, and chopped off the end of Late Night Wardling Street, Street chopped off the uh, something at the intro of Suede Head, took a whole song off The Ordinary Boys, and put this four track cassette demo on in its place. And, and people were going. Well, what have you done? And then basically he, he was going to re-sign to EMI at that point and fell out with EMI. So EMI couldn't get anyone to do any press. So th when the album came out, this reissue of River Hate, a couple of journalists wanted to talk with me about it. And I kind of said, well, I don't agree with well, what he's done. I think what he's, it's, not, it's not, I don't think it's right. Yeah. Because I said that, I have been made... Well, that was, <laughs> of course that was going to happen. So... Uh, so that was it. I was, I was, I was, I was out the picture again. <laughs> yeah. But then I'm a grown man, and when someone does something I don't agree with, and it's my album as well, yeah, I stood up for myself. So I don't agree with what he's done. I think it should have been this. Well, and, that's fine. Know, I mean, to yeah. be honest, we could all be sitting here now, and you know, one of us could say, "Well, you know, maybe I, you know, I wouldn't have done this on your I album." I actually don't like the way this podcast has been edited. <laughs> <laughs> if I had my way. Needle Mythology is brought to you in proud association with our friends at Flare Audio, inventors of the superb Jet earphones. With I Love My Friends, um, it's, um, again, you know, the, we talked about this thing of like, okay, so reconfiguring the track listing to make room for singles. You're given the opportunity to go back into the studio. You'd already made an album here with Stephen. And then who suggested Andy Partridge and why, why of all people... I suppose I'd worked with Andy on 
and love for all. You know? the, the two tracks you did with them sound great, though. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're good tracks, but it's just it was uh, it was just this thing of getting knocked back again. You know what I mean? Yeah, after being it was a completely different sound. You know, the great thing about what we did was it was it was Rick Mank on drums, Alex on bass, and me on everything else. Yeah, yeah you, you do. And uh, so it had you know it had focus, and then suddenly you put two songs, and you got Dave Mattox on drums. And, Is that what you had, Mike? And it was. The last thing I ever did at Townhouse, I think. Right. And so in order to uh, make room for those songs on the first... So we're talking about the first release of I Love My Friends Now. Then uh, two songs had to go, and those songs were Mao Badge and In the Evening of Her Day. Was the first you heard of that when just the album came out? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, um, you know, I finish a record and... and you sit back and I, well, I go on to the next thing, you know, and then then suddenly this record comes out and I hear it's been changed. I mean, it's not the first time it's happened to no. me as a producer. It, you know, it does happen. I didn't know whether it's a and R decision or Stephen's position. Uh, well, I mean, the thing decision. is, it didn't come out, did it? I got, I actually, they didn't release it. Well, RCA it. didn't release yeah, it, exactly. and I was left with that tape that I couldn't really. There was no, yeah. didn't have a budget True. to. Yeah, you right. It came out a good year later, wasn't it? Yeah, I think on, on cooking vinyl. Yeah, so um, it comes out, and but it was kind of a weird thing because it's. I was saying this earlier on with Stephen. It's like this this point at the end of the nineties. It was kind of like a yeah, a bit of a bit of a kind of coming down period. I think at the end, you know, the strokes were yet to happen. You know yeah. what I mean? It was it was a little bit like mm, well, thanks guys. You know, we're going to move on to the, uh, something different now for a while. You know, there wasn't it too was, much it was, pop, wasn't it? They were getting it was the guitar bands. You know, we've had that. Yeah. Let's just play and play. Let's talk about those uh, tracks that, that had to be taken off the first time. Uh, let's start with Mao Badge, which, you know, you know now by now, you know, it's like your kind of fan favourite, really. Can you remember much about the sort of writing that sort of circumstances in which it sort of came about? This was about when I was at art college, I think. I was thinking about going to art college on the bus. I oh, know, going, going on the bus to school when I lived in Birmingham and, and about the 70s, really, I suppose, something we taped on video. And yeah. also Anaglypta in Cinnamon, which Anaglypta was a kind of like a, was like a wallpaper. wallpaper. Yeah, it was like a weird, like a kind of synthetic wallpaper yeah. kind of. But I, I loved Anaglypta in Cinnamon, I just thought that sounded. Anaglypta is one of those words which is just, you take it out of context and it's just, a, as of itself, it's just a beautiful word. You I mean, do... that, that could have been the beginning of the song, thinking Anaglypta in Cinnamon, you know, yeah. and then taking it from there. heartwarming to see the reaction to the record and i've got to thank you peter for giving it some uh, you know impetus and getting it out there you know thank you very much i mean it's literally i you know i have quite m- mundane fantasy dreams about records that i'd you know like you know the, you know the kind of thing you've got a bit of a fever and you wake up at three in the morning and you think wow i just had a dream that i had a chance to sort of reissue steven's album from 1997 and but it was different because I got to put these tracks back on it and, you know, somehow here we are and it's happened, so it's kind of a bit crazy. But anyway, thank you. So that... Uh, and hold, I'm glad that we got Holding Hands with Grace yeah, back yeah. on it because that was a fun thing to do, you know, like yeah. it's, it's straightforward. Yeah. two guitars, two vocals. Yeah. And are they kind of like pan? I can't remember. I just enjoy just listening to it again. Those harmonies are just fantastic on it. So that's another thing that Northton gets overlooked with Stephen is that he's got a particular way of working with his harmonies as well, which is very, very Stephen Duffy, mm-hmm. in inverted commas, which is wonderful. You know, he will do a vocal and then he straight away he goes and he does a harmony and it just gives it that little kind mm. of and nine times out of ten he does it very very quickly as well which is uh, which is always a wonderful thing to experience when you're a record producer it's not, it's not like putting two that's the folk <laughs> yeah, that's the folk singer that's the guy who went to the incredible string band at the age of nine still yeah still going strong holding hands with grace there's a smile upon her face 
grace. Before we sort of go our separate ways, I want to ask you about sort of upcoming records. Um, I'm going to start with you, Stephen Street. That um, I had a very a pleasant surprise yesterday morning when I opened my post and I received a test pressing of the new album by The Rails. Mm-hmm. And uh, and um, there was a postcard uh, from their manager, Martin, that said, I think you'll really like this. Stephen Street's produced it. I didn't had no idea. So people who don't know, The Rails are... Mm-hmm. James Walborn, who is also in The Pretenders uh, when he's not doing the rails, and Cammie Thompson, who is, of course, uh, a fantastic singer uh, in her own right, and uh, is Richard and Linda Thompson's daughter. And um, it sounds amazing. Uh, it sounds so good. Thank you. Well, that's very nice to hear. <laughs> well, I, I heard it this morning, and I just I said, you know, what is that? That's fantastic. It was playing when I was coming downstairs, and it was, like, it was you know, that was... Just you heard 15 seconds, you thought that's a record I'm gonna buy. So buy around and wish me well, then drown me at the mall's well. person I've worked with recently, again we had to do it very quickly, because as I say, the budgets just aren't there anymore, it's Steve Mason I've worked on Steve's Oh yes, that's right, yeah and you know, the same thing, you know, we just had to get the band together, make sure everything is kind of everyone knows what they're going to play and so on and go in and make it quick because, you know, there isn't that money in the industry anymore to make records. Where do you make records now? Here, there and everywhere I mean, you know, I mean, again, according to the budget, you know, I mean, you know, um, it really is. Uh, I mean, I mix everything in my own little studio setup that I've got yeah. now. Um, I've actually got a room in Damon's place in 13. Oh, brilliant. Um, so I've got a nice kind of decent room there to mix in. It was so refreshing, actually, recently. I've been in the studio with Chrissy Hind, which has been fantastic. And I was able to use Rack Studios. And I've always oh, wanted to use Rack Studios. Which, which one? Which the main one, the API desk, yeah. you know. Uh, uh, and it was such a wonderful thing to be in a studio where they actually employed engineers. Funny enough, the last time I used Rack Studios was back in the 90s. No, 80s even. And it's when I recorded Big Mouth Strikes Again with the Smiths. Wow. So it was really nice going back there after all this time. Yeah. We did Big Mouth Strikes Again and Asleep. Which was a B side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at Rack. <laughs> well, and the amazing thing there. about uh, there working there back in the day was Mickey Most was still there. Yeah. Mickey Mouse, M- M- Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Mickey Most was still in his office. Yeah, and and he and he'd call you in. Yeah, you know. Would he co- would he come in and parlay a sort of an no, opinion you, on? You, a... You'd have to go to him, and it, you'd, you'd sit in his office, and he'd sort of like you know peer at you. Would he listen to what was being recorded? But his presence is still there. There's this TV um, big screen with lots of these images kind of flicking over. And there's Mickey sitting on the kind of bonnet of his Porsche, you know, in the 19. He was a great producer, stuff. you know. He was, he was fantastic. A very different That's... producer to you because, of course, he, he, you know, there are there are musicians like, you know, um, Terry Reid who never forgave him for like, and Donovan who. Yeah. Well, Donovan like, never had a hit after he stopped working with Mickey Most. Mickey Most gave him the big hits. Well, Mickey Most produced hits. He that was his sort yeah. of thing. So you know, when he encountered yeah. someone like Terry Reid or Donovan, then um, yeah. it, it was always going to be a bit sort of tent. Well, actually, do, do you want to go up onto my record? No. No, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've heard enough of yeah. this from Stephen Street. I think so too. <laughs> I'm releasing a record. The Lilac Time are releasing their 10th record. And actually, Hooray. I really regret not making a Lilac Time record with you, Stephen. That would have been that would have been a great if we'd have made three records. Never say never. Yeah? Yeah. There, there, there'll be another one along in a minute. 
So Return to Us is the new album. Yeah, and the 10th nice. Lila Time album. The, recorded in my basement. Yeah? Yeah. It sounded yeah. fantastic. Have yeah. you heard it? You... No, I've not heard it yet, I mean, but I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, great. occasion gentlemen thank you very much for a great pleasure thank you um you've been listening to the needle mythology podcast with myself Pete Fides. if i didn't have laura Druce around to produce it it would sound a bit shit so we all need to be very grateful to laura and to flare audio for uh, our friends at flare for helping us to make it sound so lovely as well take care see you next time needle mythology.